Hi, everyone. And we are here on the Dr. Dr. Christopher Hall Show on the on the Total Media Network. And I'm excited about the program, Dr. Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? I am just a huge fan of this amazing athlete. Go ahead and introduce our guest. But thank you for your service. And I'm sure Brett would say the same thing. Being on the front lines as a doctor in the emergency room in Mississippi uh, and uh, in Alabama, he really, you guys are going to make a great connection today, especially for what Dr. Christopher Hall does. But go ahead and introduce our guest. Well, no problem. I'm very excited to have our guest on here today. Um, it's wonderful to have a Super Bowl champion and NFL Hall of Famer, Brett Favre, on the show today. Welcome to the show, Brett. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so you're in Mississippi and Alabama working in front lines. Uh, or do you live in Mississippi? Well, you know what? I live in Mobile, Alabama. So. I think you might know about that. Uh, that's very close. I, dr- I drive through Mobile often. Uh, so very an hour and 20 minutes away. So we're neighbors. <laughs> well, you guys got to connect when you hear Dr. Hall's story about being awarded the state and he wrote a book and uh, about his time and how he had to go and battle to become a doctor and how important it was with how he you know, overcame challenges and the military man as well, Dr. Hall. So I know Brett, you see that as a very important thing as well, the military. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So how are you surviving the pandemic? How has that life been when Brett's used to going places or maybe not, you are always going hunting and stuff. Maybe this uh, whole quarantine thing's been all right for you. Uh, Not a whole lot has changed for me or my family other than our youngest daughter. We have two daughters. We have a a 31-year-old who has three boys. They live here close to us. And our youngest daughter, just she just turned 21 last month. But she she plays uh, beach volleyball for Southern Miss, uh, which is a, a Division One sport now. Well, that she, they they play in the spring, so they got one tournament under under their belt, and we're scheduled to play at a tournament the following weekend at LSU, and it was canceled two days before and the rest is history. So really what's different is we didn't do any traveling, going to watch her play. Um, in fact, our daughter moved back in with us. Uh, the university is only 10 miles away, but she just packed up everything in her apartment and just moved back home. And we just kind of been chilling, watching movies. We, we actually took a couple of vacations. Uh, we went to Colorado for a week and did some hiking and some biking and, and uh, just kind of laid low. I enjoyed the, the weather. And we also went to Lake Tahoe uh, for my daughter's 21st birthday. And we pulled her around on skis on the, on the boat. We did some hiking, um, just kind of chill and enjoy the weather. Uh, so that's kind of what we've been doing. Here at home, um, like most places, the restrictions will ease. They will tighten back up. There'll be a mask, uh, a statewide mask. You know, you have to wear it, and then that will will uh, subside, and then you can go to the restaurants as normal. We actually went and ate last night at a local restaurant we like to eat at, and they they just reopened, and uh, it was nice to kind of get out. Uh, we we love going to movies. 
we have not gone to a movie. We watch movies here at our house, but we're kind of old fashioned. We'd like to go to a theater, me and my <laughs> wife, and sit down and have malted milk balls and, and watch watch a movie. I, I look forward to the day when we can do that. Yeah, they're starting to open up theaters in Pittsburgh, and they're going to have 15 cent uh, movies by bringing out all the old movies. I think it's Cinemark or one of them is deciding that, and it's going to be 15 cents to go to come in so they can see the theater when it opens up next week. So it's crazy to think about opening up theaters. And 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 Dr. Hall, I think you'd agree as well. When you're hearing about theaters opening, see how different each state is. I'm in Pennsylvania, and they're going to be opening up very soon. Yeah, yeah. I just, I think it just depends on you know that local area and how the testing's going, and uh, you know, as Brett knows, I mean, even even Biloxi now, you know, you can you can go there and 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 get a good good meal. So yeah, wow. absolutely. Uh, not good for you, but very good uh, for the belly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Doctor Hall. Question for Brett. No problem. I'm so excited to have this All-American Champ on the show today. So, uh, Brett, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the Air Gulfport, where you grew up. And, um, you know, did you always want to play football? I always wanted to play, yes. Uh, I, I was born in Gulfport, Mississippi. I grew up probably 15 minutes to the west of Gulfport uh, in Hancock County. There's three counties on, on the Gulf Coast. Jackson County, of course, borders Mobile. Um, Harrison County sits right in the middle of the three. That is Gulfport and Biloxi, uh, as well as some other cities. And then Hancock County, we, we border uh, Slidell, Louisiana, and then the next town over would be New Orleans. So I grew up, even, even though it was South Mississippi, uh, most people thought I grew up in New Orleans, uh, 50 minutes away. But yes, my dad was a high school football coach and uh, – and coached baseball for probably 35 years. Uh, so when I was, as far back as I can remember, I was either running water out to the, to the players on, on, during a timeout, high, high school football when I was a first grader on up. And I was a bad boy for my dad, summer league ball, American Legion ball and Gulfport for, for as far back as I can remember. And I had two, two goals in mind either to play pro baseball or to play pro football, and there was no alternative. So thankfully for me, it, it panned out. <laughs> wow. And that's, that's so tremendous that you knew what you wanted to do, Brett, and that's so key, right, in life. When you have mindset of what you want to do, you can achieve your goals. When you don't have that mindset, you can't. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's complicated in some respects, but it's very simple. If you know what you want to do, you have to put in the work and, and persevere. It's not always easy. It's not always an easy road. And, and you know, I, I've, I've told our daughters so many times, and I coached high school football here in Hattiesburg for two years, and I would tell those kids as well, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard work to be good, to be good. And that doesn't mean athletics uh, necessarily. It can be anything. And uh, you can't really achieve anything without – setting goals and my youngest daughter would go round and round I go do you, you set a, an attainable goal for just for the week maybe it's get a little stronger maybe increase your vertical maybe this week it's weight loss maybe it's weight gain and she's like dad really give me a break <laughs> uh, but 
but I'm telling the truth. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a hard road, no matter, even when you know what you want to do. Um, and, and certainly when you're not real sure, the road is very hard. Uh, so definitely it worked out for me. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have to, to go a, an alternative route. All right. Next question, Dr. Hall. Wow. That's so right. It's so right, Brett. And, you know, and, and what's important, you know, is having mentors. And so, uh, you know, growing up, uh, tell us about some of your mentors. Well, my, yeah, my father was, was uh, uh, very instrumental in my success. Um, as you would expect, he was my coach. Um, he, you know, he, and I always say this, uh, and I, I even mention it, uh, a little bit during my hall of fame speech, you know, he, it, it's sort of like karate kid in, in that you go, okay, just like, uh, Danielson was trying to figure out how does this pertain to me going and getting into a fight and, and using my karate when you got me painting the fence. And that's sort of how my dad taught me, you know, at one, t at one time uh, in my career, I had every passing record in the NFL in history. And keep in mind in high school, my dad ran the wishbone. We never threw the ball. Oh, dear Lord. And I remember oftentimes leaving practice, he and I were driving back home from practice and, and being in an argument with my dad saying, how can I get a scholarship if you don't throw the ball? I thought I had a valid argument. And I almost didn't get that scholarship. I got one scholarship offer at the last second. And if my dad were alive today, he would say, see, it worked out fine. He taught me the things that, I really didn't care about toughness, leadership. I, you know, I wanted to throw. I wanted to throw touchdowns. I wanted to, you know, to, to be in the paper. And that stuff didn't matter to him. And as I here I am at 50, I get it now. <laughs> and so his mentorship was uh, was was sort of like, you know, you know, I say old fashioned. It, it was it was tough, hard nosed work, leadership, you lead by example you know, those type of things. But so personally, he would be my, my number one mentor. Now, as far as people I looked up to, there was two guys that I emulated and said, this is who I want to be when I get on the, if I make it to pro football. Archie Manning, obviously was a local guy, uh, played right next door. Right. Roger Stallback. I love the Cowboys and I love Roger Stallback. And I felt like I've, even though I didn't know what kind of style I was, I thought that was me. Run around, make things happen, and uh, you're never out of a play. Wow. I tell you, two amazing people to look at as mentors and your father and to see those things. And, and Dr. Hall, you say your mentors have helped you in life, right, Dr. Hall, get to where you were, because especially when you were a ward of the state. No doubt. And, and you need those mentors, you know, to, to, to give you a path, you know, uh, in, in this world that sometimes can seem very confusing for young people. So, yeah, Absolutely. no doubt. Absolutely. Very confusing. All right, Dr. Hall, next question. Well, no problem. And so now tell us a little bit about you went to school there at the University of Southern Mississippi. And, you know, there's always challenges when you're going to college and you're playing athletics and you know you're, you're getting to the top of your game so tell us about um, 
some of those challenges, balancing academics and athletics um, when you're in college? Well, uh, I'll, I'll go back to when I was coaching at, at Oak Grove High School here in Hattiesburg. Had a, we won a state championship and had a tremendous group of young men and, and, a, and a very smart group. We, we dressed out actually over 100 players, believe it or not. Some guys would wear a, a duplicate number because our coach wanted to – he wanted everyone to feel that atmosphere, which I thought was great. Um, but I, I stress to those guys all the time. We had a fair amount of kids go D1. A couple of guys are playing minor league baseball uh, that were on our football squad. One kid is just finishing up at Cal, University of California. Uh, and I stress to them all the time the importance of academics. And, you know, at times I got the eye roll, uh, as you would expect. Uh, but I go back to when I was in high school, junior high, high school, elementary. My mother was a special education teacher oh, wow. for 30 some odd years. My dad was a driver's ed teacher and coach for the same amount of time. So I, I got the importance of academics. I, um, did I like it? Not necessarily. You know, did, did, did history turn me on like football did? No, but I knew it was important. And, um, you know, when you go to college, as uh, we know as adults, uh, you have to cut the cord with your kids to a certain degree, and you have to fend for yourself. And uh, that can be good, that can be bad, depending on what kind of teaching, you know, they were brought up with, and you let them go. And, and, and for me, um, I, you know, wasn't real sure what the alternative plan was. As I said earlier, it was baseball or football. I was I actually signed to play both at Southern Miss. I started as a true freshman in, in football and chose to, to channel all my energy towards football just because I didn't want to miss spring practice. I mean, this was a great opportunity. Um, but meanwhile, I had uh, I was banking on the draft. Uh, at some point in the near future, but I knew my academics were very important uh, just in case. But also the challenges you face with peer pressure and, uh, you know, today's world is even much different, much harder. But when I was 17, 18 years old, there wasn't social media, uh, but there was peer pressure. There was drinking, there was drugs, uh, no different than there is today. And trying to sort through all that, uh, what's cool, what's not cool, what your focus is, what your goals are, are obviously very important. And, uh, and it goes back to, uh, like what you said, Dr. Hall, that, that mentorship, uh, getting, maybe it's not your dad, maybe it's a, a coach, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a, a family friend that can steer you on the right path and give you some, some unbelievably uh, wisdom, knowledge that, uh, you know, you, you may not want to get a, do this, young man. You may not want to do this. You're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree by yeah. drinking, you know. I, and, and I would say all those things to the kids I was coaching in high school. I, I had, when I got to college, I started drinking. I thought I was cool. Uh, and come find out that, before I knew it, drinking had a, 
had the upper hand on me. And I haven't had a drop since 1998. Pain pills, you know, harmlessly. Uh, I didn't get addicted because I wanted to, but I did get addicted. Uh, you know, so just having, having someone to, to lean on, to give you insight, who's been down some of the roads that you're, you're walking down is absolutely vital in, in any young person's success. Agree. And that's so, so important to have that. What did you major in college, Brett? I was actually uh, going to be a special education teacher like my mother. I tell you what, I, I think I would have been a really good one. Yes, you would. But I, when we drove to school every morning, first through 12th at my school was all together. So now everybody has a school that you go to a lower elementary and then you go to middle, uh, middle and then, you know, the, some even have like a ninth grade school that's separate. But ours was all together. So we, there's four kids, my mother and father, and we all drove to school together and we drove home together. So when we would get to school, I would go in my mom's class prior to, we'd get there before all the other kids. And when her kids would start coming in, I would always have fun with them. And uh, she had all ranges of uh, special ed, uh, from very severe to lazy. Right. Uh, and, and I just took a liking to... I felt like I gravitated to her students very well and, and felt like that was my calling. And one of the things that we do for our, our foundation, my wife and I, is we, we do things for Special Olympics. Um, and uh, again, it, you know, it wouldn't have paid very much being a high school coach in Mississippi and a teacher, but it would probably have been very rewarding uh, had I done that. Oh, just again, things we don't know about Brett Favre today here on the Dr. Christopher Hall show on the Total Media Network. Go ahead, Dr. Hall, the next question. I mean, I just did not know he major in education. I too am an education major. I taught for nine years before uh, going into business and entrepreneurship, but I have a tutoring company too. But education, once I learned to teach, it's such a powerful thing you can utilize in the world once we become educators, because we know we have to constantly learn learn and it never we always grow if we are stagnant then we don't want to grow in life right. we're this out on all the exciting parts of life for sure right. all right dr hall next question wow well, you know and what a champ i mean just to uh to um talk about some of the challenges he had that, that can help young people who are going into who are going to the nfl and who are going to be in the um that high profile life so that's just incredible well, you know, there's um, this whole, uh, and this is kind of central, you know, I think what we're going to talk about is there's this whole field that these players end up, um, uh, uh, illnesses they end up with, this undiagnosed um, epidemic of concussions that are going on. Um, tell us what your thoughts are on that, Brett. And um, yeah, just what do you think about that? Well, concussions are a major pro problem. And as we all know now, they're not going away. They're going to happen, and it, and not necessarily on the on the football field or baseball field or soccer field. It can be in your home. It can be on the ice rink. It can be playing by the pool, playground, car wrecks, elderly falling. I could go on and on. The last play that I played 
in my 20 year career, I played 300, started 321 games. The last game that I started ended with one of two major concussions that I had in my career. Now, how many concussions did I have overall? Who knows? Because as we know now, and I had a very good long conversation with Dr. Benjamin Amalu, who Will Smith portrayed in the movie, mm -hmm. uh, Concussion. And he said, Brett, what, you, what people don't realize, and hopefully they start realizing, is that when you mention, or you hear a player mention, yeah, or you see a kid bang a helmet with another kid and he shakes his head, uh, like he's getting the cobwebs out. Right. Or that, that player later says, yeah, I was seeing stars. Or I was a little woozy, but I was fine. Dr. Malu said, that's a concussion. He said, think about boxing in, in this way. It's not the knockout blows that do the most damage. It's the thousands of jabs that do the damage. And he said, football is, is a perfect example of that. There are some big devastating blows that when a, a kid tries to get up, he staggers like a boxer. Yeah. No doubt that's a concussion. Well, what about the ones where the kid stays in the game and, and he saw stars, maybe he was a little woozy uh, for two, three seconds. He didn't really know where he was. Then it's, it came back. Um, that's a concussion. And the, the long-term effects, we, we're really just kind of uh, on the cusp of what, what that really means and how devastating that is. But we're seeing it being from Pennsylvania and being a Steelers fan, that movie really was kind of yeah. centered around uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the things that are happening to NFL uh, retired players and even some present players who are, who are choosing to retire early is scary. It's frightening. And I have three grandsons, 10, 6, and 3. And I, I'm often asked the question, well, are you, they're going to play football. I am not going to encourage them to play football at all. If they choose to play, I will support them. But I would much rather, and I always say this, and people get a chuckle out of it, I'd, I'd much rather caddy for them in golf. And, and the main reason is is because I'm so fearful of them being tackled and the, the you know, the, the damage being severe, at least maybe – you know, you think if you're okay after a big hit that five years from now, 15 years or 25 years from now, you'll be fine. That's not necessarily true. And uh, there is no treatment. So I was approached by a guy by the name of Jake Van Landingham, who uh, at the time, about eight years ago, I was retired. I was here in Hattiesburg. A mutual friend introduced us. Uh, that mutual friend is a doctor here in Hattiesburg. His name's uh, David Lee, great guy. And he said, I want you to hear this guy out about concussions. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. And I listened to him. He was the head of the neuroscience department at Florida State University at the time. Uh, he has since left to pursue uh, his, his uh, developing of drugs uh, in, in particular for concussions. Uh, he almost died himself prior to that, actually early 90s, he told me the story. Uh, he was uh, 
jumped by a guy, a vagrant in a bar in, uh, outside of the University of Florida where he and his brother and some friends were shooting pool and he hit his head on the curb. They rushed him to the hospital and they released him that night, said he was fine. He went back to his hotel room. His brother left, he had to go to work and said, you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. And his dad called the room a little bit later to check on him and he couldn't talk. The, the swelling of his brain had increased so much that it, it uh, inhibited his talk, but he was able to knock the phone off the hook. And um, his dad knew, knew that he had had a brain injury or right. head trauma and said, hey, if you can hear me, I'm gonna send a friend, because they live in Tallahassee, so I'm gonna send a friend of mine over to check on you. And fortunately, that guy came over, broke into the room, took him to a hospital. They gave him an experimental drug that later did not pass FDA approval that saved his life. Um, and, and it was the last, it was the last straw. Saved his life. And from that point on, it was just, it's just, laser focus to develop something that will treat concussions. And, uh, and that's what he's pursuing. And so I heard him out. He had, had, uh, had developed a product uh, that basically is a nasal solution. Uh, if you think your child has a concussion, if you think your player has a concussion, if you think your grandmother has a concussion, you uh, do this application and basically they blow out their mouth and it blows uh, this uh, medication into the brain and within seven minutes it reduces the inflammation of the brain. Oh, wow. And I thought, well, this is, this is wonderful. Yeah. As I've learned, and it's very simple, I know it's complicated, but it's very simple. The main problem with a concussion is the brain swells. The yeah. less it swells, the less damage. Uh, Correct. You know, a better medical term. So if you can reduce the inflammation, um, then, I mean, you're not going, will it cure? We're not going to get rid of concussions, so we better treat them. And, and it's been a hard sell, uh, surprisingly. I've learned a little bit about the, the red tape side. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's frustrating. Um, but that product, that that nasal uh, medication requires FDA approval. This, on the other hand, uh, is new. This is a non-FDA approved cream. Okay. That basically, Jake has uh, developed kind of by accident using aloe, uh, rubbing it on the neck. Okay. And within minutes, and this is a pre, so before a game, you use it before the kids go to the playground. You use it. Car, you know, uh, hockey game. You rub it on the neck before, and it provides seven hours of anti. anti it's like taking an anti-inflammatory by mouth prior to a game, or wow. prior to a half marathon. Or, you know, this is providing anti-inflammatory protection. So we're hoping to get this out and about like ASAP. Uh, but he just basically developed this in the last few months. So that's kind of what I'm up to. So that's interesting, Brett. And, and Chris, I'm going to let you summarize, Brett, after that, kind of because you've really kind of taken that point. So I'm a former athlete myself. 
I'm a former professional wrestler, so I took many chair shots to the head. I was in minor leagues, but I took a lot of chair shots to the head, different things like that. So it's more for people who have – what about people that are currently have concussions? This product doesn't work for that type of thing. It's only for no, – Neither one. In fact, I asked that question right from the get-go. I said, Jake, what about the concussions I've had? He said, I'm sorry. This, this does, no, does no good. This is for uh, – this actually is pre – the nasal uh, solution is uh, after the fact. So a kid gets a major concussion, you do the application and hope that it reduces the, the inflammation enough that uh, there's not major damage. Yes, uh, absolutely. Okay, so uh, where can we well, uh, purchase the product? Then uh, Chris is going to summarize you. Where can we... Uh, pick up the product and stuff? Well, we're, they're, they're, it's manufacturing, uh, in manufacturing right now, they got a tube to me like ASAP so I could hold this up. Uh, and uh, I would go to Prev Pro. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, we can. Uh, P-R-E-V-P-R-O and, uh, or Prevacus uh, and, and get more info. But we're, we're like working like day and night trying to get this out and, and about. But probably, and I'm, I don't want it to sound like the business person because I'm not, but I think we're probably going to do online first um, and then hopefully get into retail, CVS, places like that, Walgreens, uh, but big sporting goods, things that, of that nature. But uh, we got to get it manufactured first, but that's in the, in the works. All right, Chris, summarize Brett. Well, no problem. Well, there you have it. You know, one of the most electrifying NFL quarterbacks in history, okay, uh, uh, a, a Super Bowl champ. Uh, he's given us some great information for our young people, okay, to, to stay focused, uh, to have mentors, okay, to believe in yourself. And, uh, and so now here uh, with, with an incredible uh, cream and with a, with a purpose, okay, to help us with this epidemic of concussions, preventive cream that can go stop the inflammation uh, or prevent it and therefore stop the long-term effects of concussions that occur over years. So, wow, just an awesome interview. I'm so excited that the Super Bowl champ, Brett Barb, was here with us today. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Brett. Other projects going on. Your foundation, where can we find info on the foundation and stuff so people far, can... Far, all one word. Far, the number four. Far for hope. Uh, and uh, my wife had breast cancer, so she gears everything towards breast cancer. Awareness, uh, treatment for people who can't uh, medically get, get their own treatment. She mammograms, things of that nature. She, and then on my end, uh, I mentioned Special Olympics. We disadvantage children basically in the state of Mississippi and in the state of Wisconsin. We've done things, uh, cystic fibrosis, St. Jude. Um, so, but you can look that up online and uh, hopefully help us out. Well, we definitely want to, Brett, and you're enjoy hopefully going to see an NFL season. Who knows, but you want to see movies before an NFL season. You want to get to the movie theater. Or, or yeah, both, but we'll, I'll take one if not the other, but I'd love to have both. All right, well, I really learned a lot about Brett that I did not know, and I'm glad we had this kind of interview because you never yeah. get that kind of interview to really see the, the different side of Brett Favre, especially for the people that – 
are angry when you beat them every time. Now they know this is the Brett Favre that we should know and love. So uh, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, take care, guys. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall show. Everybody. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Good. How you doing? Fantastic. We have an amazing guest, don't we, Alan? We have an absolutely amazing guest. He has taught me so much in the last couple of years about what's going on in our financial world. Uh, people need to listen to Tom. Uh, and anytime you see anything about Tom Gober, read it, because it's very enlightening. All right. We're so excited to have you on, Tom. And uh, Alan has some a lot of great questions. So go ahead, Alan. I'm ready. Tom, to start off with, I know you're a certified fraud examiner and forensic accountant, and you've been doing this a long time. Tell us about why you do this and for how long. Well, I've been actually doing what I do best for 37 years. 37 years ago, I began as a young insurance examiner. I examined insurance companies of all types. I became accredited and then certified and became the state examiner in charge. So it was my job to examine all of the insurance companies in our state, many in other states that did business in our state. And I had to run both the financial condition and the market conduct examinations which means I got to say literally every aspect of an insurance company. So 37 years in total. Well, that's quite a while. I mean, your expertise can't be, uh, can't be questioned. Let me ask you, what did you learn during those years assisting the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office that has helped you the most? Yeah, so let me cover a little bit about my career path. I've had a wildly challenging an odd sort of career path. I've actually worked undercover for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. I have served as an expert and a consulting, uh, both consulting and testifying expert on white collar criminal cases over about 12 years uh, for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, occasionally for IRS CID um, and also U.S. Postal Inspectors. It was those kinds of cases where, because they were criminal cases, we had access to federal grand jury subpoena power. We were able to get emails, voicemails even, recordings. We got to see the tender underbelly of this massive insurance industry. And I learned some things that were pretty spooky. Uh, some of the companies doing some things that would shock, I think, all of you, your listeners. You must have learned some stuff that you that you uncovered. You're like, this could be a book in itself. It could be a undercover series, right? The what 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 it's how it's run and stuff, right, Tom? Some of the things that I've seen, even going all the way back, 37 years. If I take the types of schemes that worried me the most, and I actually made them my specialty. And that is what I call sleight of hand reinsurance, where insurance companies pretend they've laid off substantial risk, future death claims, right, to another company. It's only an appearance. In fact, they're hanging on to the promises to pay but treating their accounting as if they no longer have those obligations. 
very nasty scheme. I focused on that 37 years ago, and I'm telling you, the very first time I spotted it and called it out, I was threatened. In fact, every time I tried to stop these large reinsurance fraud schemes, I got in trouble from you know all different areas. Uh, but that taught me that this must be important. I need to figure it out. So now jump forward 37 years. And I have to tell you today, the practice that worries me the most is the same practice. There are many for-profit life and annuity carriers who are using what I call sleight of hand or financial engineering reinsurance that they enter with their own affiliates, usually offshore or even sometimes in the U.S. in these what are called secret captives. And, and so that's what I want to focus on most with you guys. Are the, there's really two categories, okay? Two categories that worry me today. The investments. If an insurance company is investing substantial sums in really high-risk asset categories, uh, when I say high risk, I mean also illiquid. It would be difficult to sell in a hurry, right? That's one category of risk relative to the company's surplus. So surplus is simply the excess of assets over liabilities. I don't want to get too complicated here, but as long as assets are greater than liabilities, that difference is surplus. And when you have too much in high risk assets, and the values drop, you understand that comes out of surplus. So we keep an eye on that. But my biggest concern is a lack of transparency. This goes all the way back 37 years. They enter into transactions where literally billions of dollars go offshore. But once it's there, we can't see it. How about that? <laughs> crazy so, talk. Yeah. Spooky. Well, you know, some of the stuff that you've taught me, Tom, is, is the TSR ratio. I, and I talk to I talk to major insurance companies all the time. They have no idea what it is. And uh, when I tell them about it, uh, we're looking at transparency solvency. Uh, you know, they got these major carriers out there that one slip of the deal, you know, one slip slip up and they're done. And people don't know this. Yeah. And uh, an important point there is a pattern that has emerged in recent years is that while total assets have skyrocketed, right? That's a good thing, but total liabilities have actually increased at an even faster pace. So what you've got are very narrow, what I call razor thin buffers. These surpluses are so thin relative to their risk profile, right? And so what the TSR does, uh, you might not can see it here, but actually have transparency, surplus, and riskier assets. What we, what we do is we take an annual statement, the source document for an insurance company that is 1,000 pages, sometimes 3,800 pages. And I, I focus, I shine a light on the two areas of risk that are greatest to what worry me the most. 
Those are concentrations of higher risk assets relative to surplus. And this reinsurance with affiliates. Now, bear in mind, when it's reinsurance with an affiliate, you're re really talking about moving money from one pocket to another. It's not out to some big independent reinsurer in Germany. We're right. talking about a sister company in Bermuda or Barbados or even Malta, for Pete's sake. So we total up the high-risk assets and the non-transparent reinsurance. We add those together and divide it by surplus. All that does is reduce to one ratio, a simple number, that the lower the score, the lower their risk profile and adequacy of capitalization. The higher the score, the higher the risk, and the less the transparency. So while you see a simple one number, it really does a lot for you because so much of what I have to go and find in these annual statements, almost no one even knows where to go to find that stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to help the average consumer and their advisors to see through the initial appearance and dig deeper. Right. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. So you should be really concerned about low T TSR scores for certain insurance companies not to do business with, right? Yeah, the, the lower the score, the better. No, higher. So oh. a low TSR, the lowest in the nation last year was 25%, which meant that if all of the high-risk activities of that company, if they even dropped to zero, they've still got 75% of their surplus left. Mm -hmm. On the other end, though, the highest company in 2021 was 8,300%. In other words, 83 times their surplus, which meant just the least bit of write-downs on those high-risk recoverables could break that company. So the spectrum is wide. You want to be on the lower end, and it works. It just makes sense. So, Alan, are you, is that one of the things you really look at with your clients? Is that TSR? Oh, absolutely. You know, when they tell me, well, this other guy told me about this particular product. I said, well, first off, is that a, a, an equity company where they look out for the stockholders? Or is it a mutual company or a fraternal company that looks out for the policyholders? And I said, and then I asked him, I said, have you ever heard of the TSR ratio? Well, no. And it's even with these uh, IMOs and FMOs. They, they don't. Uh, they, and they pushed me, Tom, to sell these high high number uh high tsr number companies and i tell them i won't i won't i won't even talk to you about this stuff well and alan so I'm, I'm proud i'm proud of you for that for real the, the the largest percentage of advisors um insurance agents and advisors and fiduciaries look at the ratings like am best or right. standard right. and poor's they have an A rating, so they're awesome. And that's as far as they look. And just recently, this is really important. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, just put out an official notice a few months ago that literally said you should no longer rely upon the ratings agency scores because we relied on them in 2008 and you saw what happened. I'm not saying don't look at those scores, but that's just a small piece of it. 
What I want to see, and remember, this is 37 years of me looking after the consumer. For 37 years, I have found that some keep some companies, their executives care only about doing the right thing for their policyholders, their members. So if they're mutual or fraternal, you don't have an outside investor. What I found across that 37 years, I think I started at just the right time because right after I began, most of the large life and annuity insurance companies began demutualizing. They were mutuals that existed entirely for their policyholders. When they demutualized, something drastic happened. Think about this. It's, it, as a mutual, it's a really simple process. Premiums come in to the pot and start piling up. Claims come out of the pot. Over time, if premiums are higher than were necessary to pay the claims, what happens to that money? They give it back to their policyholders by either reducing the premiums or giving them policyholder dividends. So over time, it's self-balancing because it's one pot of money and only premiums in and claims out. Expenses are static, right? The home office staff, they're going to be roughly the same, slightly increasing each year on these mutuals. But when you demutualize and you have stockholders, suddenly you have a new mouth to feed. You have not just a new mouth, but a louder mouth, an investor who's astute and high pressure. And right away, they begin pushing the top executives saying, look, we want we not only want you to pay us stockholder dividends, we want those dividends to go higher every year. And guess what? The executives, when they enabled the demutualization, they got tons of shares. So they want dividends too. They want their stock options to go up. And what I'm saying is not in and of itself wrong. What I'm telling you is suddenly... You're not just looking after your policyholders. You're thinking about, ooh, how much do I need to pay them to keep right. them happy, right? And that is when all of the risk that we're talking about here began. Those companies had to suddenly feed this new mouth and the policyholders. So they, they invested in higher risk assets and they started playing these reinsurance games. So let's. So sense. I'm going to jump, and then I'll let Alan talk about this. How do insurance companies make money? If they, if they are a mutual, they're not really making money. They are accumulating premiums, paying claims, and self balancing by either returning extra money to the policyholders, or if they're short on premiums in a given year, they have to go to those policyholders and say, "Look." We didn't charge you enough. We've got to go up on the rates. But those policyholders understand why. They know why the rates are going up because it's only for their own claims. It's not that a bunch of money is going to some outside investor. Now, if you are a for-profit company and you have investors, lots of stockholders, as you accumulate funds that I consider to be excess premiums, if you're building up a bunch of profits, it has to mean that over time, your premiums have been higher than they needed be to be to pay your claims, right? Yeah. 
And if that's the case, that should be going back to the members. Instead, it's going out as cash. I mean, stockholder dividends, that's money gone and you don't get it back. The only time that becomes a problem is when over time the the investors demand more than the company can really bear. And that's when you start getting the fake reinsurance because not even the very best insurance company out there is going to have an occasional bad year right. or a series of years where they lose money. But see, because insurance companies are regulated, if you lose money or your surplus gets too low, you're not allowed to pay stockholder dividends. Uh-oh, our investors are demanding it. And if we don't pay a dividend this year, they may go elsewhere. So what do they do? They say, well, you know, temporarily, we could do an offshore reinsurance deal that could poof, create a bunch of surplus overnight. That'll solve our problem for now and we can pay the dividend. You follow me on that? Yeah. But over time, this is such an important lesson. I learned this as a, as a fraud examiner, certified fraud examiner. When you plug a hole in the balance sheet with something that's not real, that hole is going to always get bigger over time because it's not earning its keep. What's in the hole is fake. So it doesn't earn investment income. It actually costs the time of the executives. They end up juggling these schemes more than running the insurance company. You follow me there? Yeah, so what totally. happens is that hole gets bigger. And it's so easy, unfortunately, when you do an offshore deal with your own company, you can create. I shouldn't say create. You can create an appearance of more surplus than you have, enabling you to pay out. But when you do that year after year, what happens? You end up with an accumulation of a ton of reinsurance that I can't see. I'm not allowed to go audit in Bermuda or Barbados. They don't let me. They don't let the U.S. examiners. U.S. examiners who regulate the U.S. companies they can't even go see their affiliates offshore. <laughs> Interesting stuff. That's nuts. I mean, hey, Tom, you know, we had 2008. I know you've, you've had uh, played a part in that. What do you think is going on today as compared to 2008? Okay. Um, it is well documented. And the NAIC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, is attempting to get their arms around the issues of high-risk assets, right? They talk about private equity groups have recently joined the industry. They purchased some of the big life and annuity carriers. And private equity is not accustomed to regulation. By law, if you stick to the rules, you don't have to answer to regulators as a private equity group you're supposed to be gambling with your own money. You're a wealthy person, you're astute. So, but when they reached out and started buying life and annuity carriers, suddenly they're, they're trying to continue this high risk activity, even though the regulators are worried about it. So on the asset side, Alan, you do have 
higher risk assets going up. But that is publicly known and understood. And I believe people began to see that as we approached 2008. They heard about more residential mortgage backs, commercial mortgage backs, right? But on the other side of the balance sheet, almost no one understands about this reinsurance. That's why whenever I get a chance to talk about it, let me just say this. Suppose you had a mortgage with a bank for $300,000. And you know you didn't have a lot of extra money. You may have decent income, but really couldn't afford to borrow anymore. Suppose you went to the bank and said, oh, I no longer owe that $300,000 mortgage. I've transferred that to someone else who's on the hook now. That's what reinsurance is. Oh, I don't have those death claims to pay now. My reinsurer has it. But what if your child is an infant, let's say 18 months old, and you don't tell the bank that the, re the person that's now on the hook is your 18-month-old son who has no money, right? If that son is in Barbados, there's no way of finding out how much money he's got. You see what I'm saying? What I'm trying to say is that lack of transparency is my greatest fear. And by statutes, the laws in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. require transparency. So these transactions offshore, in my professional opinion, are not compliant with the statutes. It's pretty harsh well, stuff, but it's true. I, t I tell you, Tom, I think... I think this ought to be part of continuing education for people. I really do, but it it will never go because you know they got this is like the lobbying efforts of uh, Wall Street with the Congress. Uh, but it's uh, it's information that I've taken to heart, and uh, I show my clients, and they thank me for it because nobody has ever told them about it. What's it? I don't want to, us to run too long. How are we doing time-wise, guys? We're doing great so far, so let's keep going. I, I, I'll, this is such a great show, Alan. Let's go till you're finished with your questions, Alan. No all right? problem. All right, excellent. I just want to make sure. So recently, I'm feeling so much better about getting the word out because recently I provided both oral and written testimony to several really important federal regulatory groups. I, I gave testimony to the United States Senate Banking Committee, their chief counsel who reports directly to the chair, Senator Sherrod Brown. I presented about these very issues to the Senate Banking Committee. Just a couple of months ago, I went to Washington, D.C. and provided oral and written testimony to the Department of Labor the Department of Labor who regulates pensions, 401ks, all of those things that fall under ERISA. I presented on these same issues to the Department of Labor. And I'm telling you that both groups listened carefully, took copious notes and asked great questions. And to me, that says people are starting to wake up. Totally, wow, good stuff. Um, Alan, continue, I know you have some more questions. Well, the uh, what, what Tom is talking about, it should be taught. I mean, it's, it's like, I, you know, I talk to people about the effective interest costs. They don't know what it is. I said, well, this is not rocket science. This stuff ought to be taught in high school. 
but it's not. And people can sell insurance and, and stocks and bonds and all this. They need to know about the TSR ratio for these companies. I mean, it's vitally important because people get in a retirement and all of a sudden their their carrier goes under. Well, what are we going to do? Live off Social Security? So is that is that happening, Alan and Tom, that carriers go under? Uh, it happens more often than we hear about because when an insurance company gets in trouble, remember now, insurance is totally regulated at the state level. Each yep. state has their own insurance commissioner. In my professional opinion, that is a weakness. You've got 51 jurisdictions trying to govern. But the issue there is how can you expect a small understaffed, underpaid state regulatory group to regulate such an immense, very sophisticated financial services industry, right? That has now gone global. Virtually all of the companies I'm talking about have at least one presence offshore or in Germany or in Switzerland, right? So how do these little state regulatory groups keep up with it? We I'm can't. not faulting them. I'm just saying we need a greater um, overarching scope of regulatory supervision. That's my professional opinion. Let me give one really good example that I think is important. Remember, I used to be an examiner 37 years ago. As the examiner in charge, I knew that by law, if an insurance company is not the only company, and almost always now, they're part of a big group of companies. They may have 45 pages of subsidiaries and affiliates all over the world. The NAIC says, if you have more than one insurer in the group, you must do what they call a coordinated examination to examine all of those insurers simultaneously. Why? The oldest trick in the book as a certified fraud examiner. I learned of one company, all they did was sell grain and they kept it in grain silos and they pulled off one of the biggest frauds. Before the auditors arrived, they would make sure the silo they were going to audit was full. And then before they went to audit the next silo, they would move the same grain to the to the other silo. And they did that over and over. So you have to audit all of the companies at the same time. And that's an old audit fundamental under both GAAP and SAP, right? So what happens? You, I ran examinations where we had multiple insurers. You had to coordinate and do them at the same time. Well, I found out they are doing that in the U.S. for the U.S. companies. But what if they've got a company in Iowa and a company in Delaware, but they have three in Bermuda, and most of the business is going to Bermuda? Yes, they examine the Iowa and the Delaware simultaneously, but they don't examine the offshores at all. They've never been allowed to examine those companies, even though they're part of the same group. And that is a huge shortcoming. And again, it adds to the lack of transparency, right? Well, Tom, I, I got one last question and you kind of made, made 
answered it already, but are there books in the law, excuse me, are there laws on the books that prohibit hidden affiliated companies or reinsurance? There absolutely are statutes in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. that are modeled after what the NAIC required as the Holding Company Act. And it's really pretty simple. And it was the, the act 